i'm martina navratilova. lesbian, gay and transgender people are part of every community. we are your teammates, your neighbors, your family they claim ten percent homosexuals in the population it's been dubbed the gay oscars. nominations for the glad awards are out and as the world turns, had america spinning with a hot teenage boy-on-boy kiss you call homosexuality an abomination I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 1822. Chapter and verse. Homosexuality, gay marriage, tolerance, bigotry. What is the biblical view? This is Evidence and Answers with Christian author, speaker, and apologist, Dr. Pat Zuckerman. I'm your co-host, Kevin Harris, and today we'll examine what for some is a very uncomfortable topic, homosexuality. Pat's guest is Kirby Anderson of Probe Ministries, who's written a new book on the topic, and we think you're going to get some real evidence and answers on this issue. Speaking of which, go to our website and take advantage of the multitude of resources at evidenceandanswers.org, evidenceandanswers.org. We've got interviews with scholars and topics from atheism to Zen Buddhism. So while you're listening, be sure you go to our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Pat? Thanks, Kevin. We have with us a special guest today, the National Director of Probe Ministries and my boss, Kirby Anderson. We're in a battle today to save the family, the oldest institution created not by man, but by God. And there are several states looking to legalize gay marriages now. and. Many, even Christians, are kind of throwing up their hands today, Kirby, and saying, well, let them have it. It really doesn't affect me or my family. But what impact would legalizing gay marriages have on our society and our culture? Yeah, I think that's a good question because a lot of people first looked at Massachusetts, now California, and have said, well, you know, it's not going to have any impact other than the fact that a number of individuals that wanted to get married will be able to do so. But if you go back and look at what has actually taken place in other countries, you can recognize that there are some very significant impacts. I've said before that in a sense we've been engaged in a social experiment in Europe for quite some time. And if you go and look at a number of countries, especially the Scandinavian countries, a number of individuals, Stanley Kurtz comes to mind, but others as well, have documented a couple of things. When you begin to redefine marriage, a lot of people begin to wonder whether marriage is that important at all. And so we begin to notice things like cohabitation begins to rise rather dramatically. The number of children in uh, single-parent homes or even in homes where uh, there is a tremendous fluidity begin to take place. So you can see that uh, when people say, well, what impact would homosexual marriage have on my heterosexual marriage, they're really looking short term. Even more recently, there was a very interesting media piece which said, well, look, you know, we've legalized same-sex marriage in Massachusetts and the sky hasn't fallen. Well, you know, you could say that at a number of other times when you were in the midst of social changes. Sometimes it takes a generation for it to show up. But we don't have to wait for a whole generation to understand that there is oftentimes a very significant impact. And in my book, A Biblical Point of View on Homosexuality, 
sexuality. I kind of take you through some of the studies that show that it has an impact on marriage, it has an impact on families, and ultimately it has an impact in terms of the definition of marriage. Because after all, if marriage is no longer between one man and one woman, but it could be two men or two women, why couldn't it be two men and a lot of women or one man and a lot of women? The argument that leads to same-sex marriage is the same argument that leads to polygamy and all sorts of other different kinds of sexual relations. So the bottom line is that uh, homosexual marriage, same-sex marriage, has had and will continue to have a profound impact on the institution of marriage. Kirby, and you've put out a timely book here, A Biblical Point of View on Homosexuality, and you referred to it a little earlier. Tell us a little bit about the book. Why did it come out and what's special about it? Well, as you know, I'm a talk show host, and so I spend a fair amount of time talking about various issues, and this is part of a series in which what I oftentimes do are take the 50 or 60 most asked questions. Those are the ones I run into when I speak on the subject or when I do radio. And I try to give you about a two to five minute answer. So in a fairly short number of pages, a little over 100 pages, you have an opportunity to see what I think are the big questions about homosexuality as it relates to the Bible, as it relates to churches or corporations, as it relates to, as we just mentioned a minute ago, politics, and then try to give you some answers. And I've found that this is one of those topics where even when you try to avoid it, you don't. I mean, I cannot tell you the number of times I've come into a studio and uh, I'm thinking, okay, here, let's talk about some of the issues in the news. And somebody says, you know, we really have to address this issue on homosexuality today. Either there has been a decision made by a major church body to ordain a homosexual. There has been some new challenge to a biblical perspective on homosexuality. There has been some new ruling from a judge. And so as a result, this has become just a very hot topic. And even though a lot of us sometimes would like to avoid it and say, I'd like to move on to other issues. It's just one that just stays in the news all the time. Yeah, you know, Kirby, Kevin and I will tell you, we speak in different countries and in churches all over this country, and I, I can be speaking on eschatology or Genesis chapter 1, and the subject of homosexuality comes out. Someone will inevitably ask, is homosexuality a sin? And that's a hot button that gets the whole crowd going so you're exactly right and I found that to be the case uh, your home state of Hawaii I just sent a copy of this book to a few friends in Hawaii and one of them wrote back and said I'm so grateful I have this book because I'm in this Christian ministry I haven't told anybody else but I've got a relative that's a homosexual I've really wanted to know what to do I was born in Berkeley California my uncle was a very prominent homosexual in the San Francisco Bay Area later moved to Scottsdale uh, so this was something I was dealing with. Uh, my wife dated a boy through high school, eventually died of AIDS. So when I come to this issue, it isn't just sort of academic, although I tried to give you the academic study, but it was experiential as well because we've had to deal with this issue most of our lives. Even now, you look at where I used to live. There was a male homosexual down the street that wanted to use some of the facilities near our house so he could park his RV there and had a you know an ongoing relationship with him, the new house where I live, there are lesbians living across the street. Uh, most all of us have uh, friends, co-workers, people that we uh, go to for various services that are homosexual. So this issue is not going to go away, and I think it's important as Christians to really help us develop our biblical compassion to reach out to individuals, but also to understand our biblical convictions about what the Bible has to say about this issue. Well, one of the first questions you answer in this book, and this is a great place to start here, how did we get here? I mean, how did homosexuality and gay marriage become so prominent and mainstream? I mean, there are dozens of TV shows on it. You hear about it in the news all the time. 
How did it become so prominent and mainstream here? How did we get here? Well, in one sense, that is very well documented because in the late 1980s, early 1990s, a book came out called After the Ball, written by Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen. Uh, first, there was an article, then the book. And this was basically a book that was attempting to, as they said in the original article, overhaul straight America. And they really kind of set forth a blueprint on how can we mainstream homosexuality? And uh, they used all sorts of statistics. There are more homosexuals than there are people that play golf. And there were, uh, you're supposed to spend time talking about homosexuality and gayness and portray homosexuals as victims and give homosexual protectors a just cause to really spend a lot of time talking about it. And in a sense, that is exactly what takes place. As a result, especially Hollywood picked up on a lot of this, and there are an enormous number of gay characters, homosexual characters, on television programs today. As one person said recently as a media critic, if you came from Mars and the only thing you knew about American society is what you saw on television, you'd think there were more homosexuals than evangelicals, because wow. in some respects, that was a real deliberate attempt to try to give those ideas a national platform. At the same time, there was a deliberate attempt and an ongoing strategy to work with various corporations to get uh, domestic partnerships and the rest. And so in a relatively short period of time, if you go from the 1980s to the first decade of the 21st century, you can say that you're only dealing with about a 25-year period, and yet this was a major social revolution taking place right before our very eyes. You know, it's very difficult for anyone to speak out against homosexual behavior without being immediately labeled a bigot. And uh, as Christians, we try as often as we can to offer as many disclaimers as we can before we, we offer our commentary, just because we want to knock some walls down there. But Kirby, don't you think that corporations are often very pressured to sponsor gay and lesbian events because they don't want to be branded as bigoted, homophobic, and uh, also accused of, hey, you would have done the same thing to the black race back in the 50s. Do you want to be guilty of that again today? And so that campaign has been quite... Uh... Well, it certainly has, and I think it illustrates again exactly what we're talking about, because the second point on this book and in the original article by Kirk and Madsen was to essentially portray those who are homosexuals as victims. So that provided a number of opportunities. Number one, if they're victims, then they could, in a sense, hitch their caboose to the civil rights train. Number two, it really gave gave them an opportunity to portray themselves as victims and use that as an entree into corporations and also into schools. Because as you know, Pat, as you've read through the book, the whole idea of so-called safe schools was based on the idea that, well, gay kids find themselves persecuted. And again, let's just at the very outset say that we're not for any kind of bullying, whether kids are being bullied for being geeks or nerds or uh, for their sexual orientation or for their ethnic background or whatever. But by using this idea of gays as victims, homosexuals as victims, what you end up with is an entree into many of those schools. And at the same time, I think as Kevin's pointed out, it also gave a justification for supporting a lot of the so-called gay causes. And so gay pride weeks and gay pride uh, events in various corporations all really took off in large part, going back to that original strategy that was put together by Kirk and Madsen. Kirby, you know, I've personally experienced this. I was at a, a once Christian school there in Hawaii, and they have an openly gay dean of students, very openly and promoting 
uh, his homosexuality. And the Christian students there asked if I could come on the campus and speak on issues relating to the Gospels, not homosexuality at all. And they said, no, we will not allow those kinds of Christians on campus, yet they will openly allow uh, gay faculty and others to come on. So that's part of what you're saying here is is what I'm experiencing on campuses all over the country. And I think that gets back to something we've talked about before in Evidence and Answers, and that is what you call political correctness. Uh, one of the things that we used to do at Pro Ministries quite a bit is speak on college campuses. And I still do occasionally. Dr. Boland does in a few, but not as much. And that, I think, in large part is due to the idea that in the 70s and 80s, when we really were in the midst of our heyday, and we were speaking on campuses all the time, lots of times you'd have a liberal professor say, well, you've heard my point of view, so I wanted to give you a chance to hear a different point of view. Now the argument is, you've heard my point of view, and the other point of view does not deserve a hearing. The other point of view, the biblical point of view, is um, hate speech, it's intolerance, it is not politically correct, and it does not deserve a hearing. And it has really stifled debate, especially on this issue of homosexuality. And as you point out, Pat, uh, this isn't just happening in the secular arena. It's happening in the religious arena. Now, I think still a lot of evangelical colleges are holding the line on this, but others that are just sort of religious on the veneer are oftentimes quite willing to say, you know, this is an issue that is really over. Uh, just as the civil rights issue was fought in the 60s, now the gay rights issue has been fought in the 90s. And it's really pretty much over. So we really don't even need to hear the other side. And that's exactly why I think it's more important than ever that we understand, you know, since how to put together some of these talking points, because people are going to be talking about homosexuality, same sex marriage. Uh, what about gay adoption, all the rest? And my attempt in the book is to try to give you some short answers, plus some footnotes and some suggested reading, so that if you find yourself in that conversation, you can really begin to engage the debate. Because some of the debate, in a sense, in the public arena is over, but in the private arena where all of us live our world and uh, are actually engaged in all sorts of discussions, we really can have a positive impact on those around us. Yes, and the uh, gay agenda has been very successful. Even in the world of psychology, you state here that psychology has redefined homosexuality here in America. Tell us about that a little bit. You know, if you go back and look at American history, 1973 was one of those key dates. Uh, in 1973, I think most of our listeners would know that's the decision of Roe versus Wade on the issue of abortion. Well, something else happened in 1973, and that is the American Psychiatric Association for the first time decided to redefine homosexuality. There were a number of homosexual activists, and they were upset about the fact that if you look at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, what's called the DSM, which is on every shelf of almost every doctor and certainly every psychiatrist, uh, it at that time had listed homosexuality as a mental disorder, as something that could and should be treated. And after 1973, due to some activism really at the APA meeting and activism among the APA Board of Trustees, for the first time the American Psychiatric Association decided to no longer list homosexuality in that way. And what that did was it was a watershed, just as Roe versus Wade really changed the country's view on abortion and started looking at it as pro-choice. So also 1973 with this decision changed and it was a watershed and changed everybody's view about homosexuality where it for the first time could be promoted as an alternative lifestyle. And that did a couple of things. First of all, it was to affirm people in their homosexuality. Number two, it was to in a sense prevent people from e even coming up with any kind of treatment. 
Now, in my book, I spend a little bit of time talking about the fact that there are still individuals out there that have developed various kinds of methods and techniques to help individuals that are really struggling with their homosexuality, and they are oftentimes vilified for their attempt to try to help them. But I think the bottom line is is that they have been very successful and in many ways have been able to show that you, if you have a desire, can come out of the homosexual lifestyle and behavior if you want to do so, but it's difficult to have have people do so if indeed the American Psychiatric Association says it's nothing more than an alternative lifestyle. There's several myths out there that you address in your book here, Kirby. I mean, one of them is is 10% of the population here in America homosexual. And that one, I think, is uh, starting to die a little bit, but for quite a while, especially in the 1990s, it was still very typical to run into people that were saying, you know, I think 10% of the population is homosexual. And that really comes from a misreading of studies done by Alfred Kinsey. When he came out with his very influential study on the sexuality of males, he had at the time concluded that about 10% of the individuals that he surveyed at one time or another had maybe had a homosexual experience because even he was not saying that 10% were homosexual. He had all sorts of disclaimers on it, but people began to run with that number. Now, if you go back and recognize that, first of all, almost everybody looking at the Kinsey Report says that this was not a representative study. It uh, included a number of individuals who were sexual offenders, people that were in prison and the rest. It was not a representative sample at all, number one. Number two, he really wasn't even claiming that 10% were homosexual. All he was saying is of the group that he studied, which was not representative, 10% at one time or another had had one experience. That's hardly saying that you're in the lifestyle. When you look at almost all of the other studies, uh, Alan Guttmacher is the institute that is tied to Planned Parenthood, so obviously do not have a right-wing bias, if you will. They've concluded that maybe it's 1% to 2%. Studies done at the University of Chicago, 1.5%. So people are putting it in the 1% to 2% ratio. And so there is a remarkable difference between 1% and 10%. It's an order of magnitude difference. And so that's one of those myths that's out there. It's starting now finally to die a natural death simply because there's just so much overwhelming evidence to actually set it aside. I guess the question many people are asking is, is homosexuality natural or is it a choice? Am I born gay? Are there, there have been many attempts to show that people are born gay, that it's a natural tendency, it's genetic, and others are saying, no, it's a choice that you make. Well, what's the answer here? You know, I think we have to be real careful with the word choice. I do talk, have a section there on is it natural, is it a choice? Because, I, you know, I've in, interacted with individuals that said, look, it's no choice of mine. If I could choose, I'd rather not feel these ways. But these are feelings that I have. Uh, so I think when we talk about a choice, sometimes it is uh, a sense in which we're talking about a choice that wasn't made volitionally, rationally, uh, with all the facts in front of me. But if maybe I've had an early sexual experience or maybe I was abused or maybe I had certain kinds of feelings and I acted on those, that uh, certainly would be uh, the better way to describe that. But the real issue is, is it natural? Because the argument that you hear so often is, is well, homosexuality is natural. 
natural. I mean, if it feels right, it must be right, is the argument that is made. And you've seen some people that even trying to go into nature and say, you know, we even see homosexuality in nature. Probably the best example that I can come up with is all the news stories that came out about a year or two ago about those gay penguins up there in the Bronx Zoo, you know, those old gay penguins. Turns out that they weren't gay. The one uh, individual that thought he was gay, once we had some females put in there, he kind of figured everything out. But uh, not exactly a representative sample of nature. Uh, You do see something that looks a little bit like homosexuality sometimes in nature when you're talking about aggression or dominance or something like that. But by and large, I think you would have to say that whether you look at nature, which is fallen, or even as you look at human beings, the issue is is that it is not natural. And if you want to actually find a key verse for that, I would say that that's exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying when he writes to the Christians in Rome. And in Romans 1, 26 and 27, he goes on to say that actually the women had exchanged the natural function for what is unnatural. And in the same way, men abandoned their natural function of the women and burned their desire one for another. So the Bible teaches us that it is not natural. Even if the feelings may feel natural, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are. And if you try to find some example in nature in which we see homosexuality naturally occurring, when you do find it, and it is very, very rare, it almost always has to do with something like dominance or aggression or something that really does not relate necessarily to the natural function that even animals are going to be following. I guess the easy way to put it is that Some people may not choose the proclivity toward homosexual behavior. They may not have chosen their homosexual feelings or tendencies, but you do have a choice if you act on those. So what are we seeing in the church? Suppose there's a follower of Christ, and maybe because of abuse or genetics, even though that's iffy, has these proclivities, Kirby and Pat, what do we encourage them to do? And I think that's a good question, because if you think about it for just a minute, there are probably could be some kind of genetic predisposition. We'll get into that uh, probably a little bit later in our next segment. But even if you assume that to be the case, it doesn't really say that you're supposed to act on it. Let's think of some other issues. For example, there seems to be some evidence that there might be some kind of genetic tendency when we talk about alcoholism. We see alcoholism in certain kinds of families. Well, because we have that possibility there could be some kind of genetic link, does that mean that we should just affirm alcoholics? No, the scriptures are very clear. It says, you know, do not be drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What about anger? We recognize that there are a certain kind of genetic tendency that individuals sometimes have, what's known as a trisomy, where you have an extra chromosome. And we found that a disproportionate number of those individuals that have that particular genetic trisomy are in prison. So would that say, well, might be some kind of genetic predisposition for people that might get angry more easily than others. So does that mean we just affirm people in their anger? No, the scriptures say, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, so I think whether you look at alcoholism or anger or homosexuality or a number of other things, all of us, I think would be also clear to say, all of us have a proclivity to our sins. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Does that mean we act on our sin? No. So the point is that there may be differences in the way people are put together. There may be actions and may be abuse that takes place, but basically, as Kevin points out, when we talk about the choice, you have a choice to either 
follow those actions and to pursue that particular temptation or not to do so. And that's where I think the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ is so important in helping us be able to deal with those temptations and even some of those proclivities that we might have. This lady told me, uh, you Christians, you want these homosexual people to live without love. I said, well, no, of course not. You're, you're, but you're equating love with the physical acts of homosexual behavior. And she goes, okay, I can see that. And she says, but you're, but you're asking these people to live without sexual fulfillment. And there's a dozen ways that I could have responded to her, but one of the things that occurred to me is that, and what I told her is that homosexual sex is not fulfilling. Homosexuals will tell you that. They're always looking for another encounter. There's not a lot of faithfulness because it just doesn't work. Are you finding this, Kirby, in your studies? Let me pick up on that issue of sexual fulfillment because you certainly see in my book some good examples of that. Studies being done by individuals that are very pro-homosexual, one study done on AIDS, uh, for example, just the number of sexual partners that uh, individuals that are in the homosexual movement might have, and that uh, kind of serial uh, desire to try to find the next sexual conquest, I think illustrates exactly what Kevin's talking about here, this this uh, belief that the next sexual conquest, the next sexual experience is going to be fulfilling just does not work its way out and so people that could not possibly agree with most of what we've even been talking about here nevertheless sometimes begrudgingly admit that this whole idea of trying to find sexual fulfillment is very elusive and I think it illustrates again uh, some of the difficulties because if indeed God created us to be in a relationship with someone of the opposite sex then we're not going to find fulfillment when we try to pursue that same kind of relationship with somebody of the same sex. Our guest has been Kirby Anderson, the National Director of Pro Ministries, and Kirby has come out with a great book, A Biblical Point of View on Homosexuality. And Kirby, tell us where we can get more information regarding homosexuality and preparing ourselves, equipping ourselves on this issue. Well, certainly they can go to your website, but let me also mention the Probe website, probe.org. Sue Bolin and myself have both written quite a bit on the issue of homosexuality, and if you're looking for more information, go to www.probe.org. Thanks, Pat and Kirby, and thank you so much for listening today to Evidence and Answers. By the way, there are two parts to this program, so be sure that you listen to both, and they're available for download at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. If you think a show like Evidence and Answers should be on the air, a show that explores today's worldviews and gives reasons for faith in Christ, then help us keep it happening. Whenever you download or order our resources, you not only equip yourself, but you help provide us a way to write the culture with some good news. That's evidenceandanswers.org. This is Kevin Harris for Pat Zuckerin. God bless and see you next time on Evidence and Answers. 